Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. Now here's this week's episode with our lead pastor, Corey Engel. Guys, we have been in the middle of this series called The Cosmic War. And uh, I was trying to think about how do I tie this in together with Valentine's Day and all that kind of stuff. And if your marriage is like a war, um, yeah, I'm sorry for you. That's all I got. That's, uh, uh, this, is, this is not a marriage uh, message in any way. This actually is kind of a worldview message. And it's helping us understand that there is a battle that is going on beyond us that we're most of the time we're completely unaware of, but it is affecting our reality each and every day. And if we don't understand it, we will have an incredibly hard time understanding what's really going on around us. And so uh, I recapped in your notes weeks one and two, and I just, I kind of just tried to sum it all up. There's a ton in weeks one and two that we cover. The first week we talked about dimensions. We talked about, you know, it's something we, we all believe. We believe there's something beyond our natural realm. We call it that supernatural realm. We know there's something out there. We just, we have a hard time sometimes believing like it's, it's legitimate to think about stuff out there. It's hard for us to think about angels and, and, you know, God, spirit, you know, beings, those kind of things. But the Bible talks about it. And, and then we even talked about how, you know, science is validating much of what the Bible suggests, that there are realms beyond our four-dimensional uh, existence, what we call the natural world. There is things beyond that. And so that whole series was trying, or that whole message was trying to get us to that place where we, we recognize the reality is that there is other dimensions beyond our dimension. And then last week, we talked about the structure that exists in the supernatural. The Bible talks a lot about what happens in the supernatural and gives us clues and hints as to a divine structure that exists there. So just like in our world, there is structure, organizational structure, right? You, you go to work, there's probably an authority structure, people that you're accountable to and people that you have authority over, right? There's a structure there. In our government, there's structure, there's ruling, you know, authority and people have responsibilities and they, they lead others. And well, so it is in the supernatural realm as well. And we kind of laid out some of that stuff. Again, if you want more information about that, listen to weeks one and two. You can listen to it. Uh, we have a podcast where it's just the podcast form of it, where you can just listen to the message, you know, plug it in. I, I actually have been listening to some of the past messages while I'm driving back and forth, kind of evaluating how good of a job I'm doing. But, uh, but in, that, in that process, right, it's just a simple thing. Put it on, listen to it while you drive. Uh, it can be a great way to kind of catch up on some of that kind of stuff. Today, we're going to talk about the context of the Bible and really try to set the stage for what the Bible really is all about. Now, here's a problem. Many Christians, when we engage the Bible, we engage it from the perspective that this book is about us. It's about us. It's about mankind. It's about our problem. It's about our sin. It's about our need. 
And so our self-orientation blinds us to understanding the Bible per se. Most of the time when we go to the Bible, we go to the Bible selfishly. We want it to say something about us. We want it to reveal something about us, teach us something about ourselves. You know, it, in a lot of ways, we look at our lives and then the Bible itself as if we're the main characters in the story. The problem is we're not. We are not the main character in the Bible. The Bible is not about us. And if we think it is, then we will often fail to properly internalize the word. We'll fail to put it in its proper context. We'll read it, not fully understanding what it's telling us about. I was trying to figure out how to put this in a way that would make sense to you, but the only thing I could think of was this movie, Man on Fire. Anybody have seen, have you ever seen the movie Man on Fire? Denzel Washington was the, the star. Man on Fire. Okay. So the, the story is that in Mexico, there was, you know, this was back maybe in the 70s or 80s, but in Mexico, that there was a rash of kidnappings, that gangs were, were kidnapping kids of politicians and wealthy, influential people. And then they were holding those kids for ransom to be able to gain influence and money and, and all of that. Okay. So this rash of, of kidnappings is going on. So an influential couple hires a bodyguard to protect their daughter. Then the bodyguard happens to be Denzel Washington. Okay. And in the course of the, the Denzel Washington kind of befriends the young girl, and then the attack happens. A gang comes, shoots Denzel Washington. When he goes down, the kid runs over to her. They grab the kid, and they take her. And the rest of the movie, then, is about how Denzel Washington seeks down and finds the girl and rescues her. Okay, so you, you know the story. If you watch that movie thinking that the main character of the story is the young girl, you will misunderstand the movie. The girl is a critical part in the movie. She is an essential part of the story, but she is not the main character. You won't understand the movie, what it's about, and you'll miss much of the narrative of the story that's being told in the movie if you think it's all about her. It's not. It's about Denzel Washington's character. It's about the bodyguard. If you miss who the main character is, you will miss much of what the story is trying to tell you. Does that make sense? If we think the Bible is all about us, we will miss then the larger narrative of what the Bible is trying to tell you. Now, one of the things, and this is a hot topic here, okay? I'm going to throw out a hot take. How many of you heard that the Bible is God's love story to mankind? You guys have heard this? My personal opinion is that's a load of garbage, Okay? And I know it's, it's Valentine's Day. I mean, I should be playing that hard right now. But I don't think it actually is, is accurate. Trust me, 
The love of God is an essential narrative throughout the whole of Scripture, right? We won't understand the motivations of God and the actions of God and the the things that he ultimately does outside of the context of love. We won't. We, We need love, and it's an essential part of the story. But if you step way back and you look at the whole narrative of the Bible Do you know what you'll find? It is a book of rebellion and warfare. It is a cosmic battle. From the beginning to the end, it is a story of war. To say that the Bible is just a love story from God to you is like me telling my wife that Avengers Endgame is a love story. It's a romantic story. Now, trust me, inside of Avengers Endgame, if you've never seen it, I'm sorry, you should. I'm rebuking you right now. Go watch it. It's a great... No, I love, I love those movies. But here's the thing. Inside of that story, there is a wonderful love story between Tony Stark and, and his wife and their child. Right? It creates tension and there's a struggle inside of it. And without that love story thread in there, it won't make any sense why it's such a great sacrifice for what Tony does at the end of the movie. Make sense? If you guys have seen it, you totally know what I'm talking about here. But my wife would not at all agree with me if I said, oh, it's a love story. It is a, it's an incredible love story, but it is a movie about war. It's a movie about a huge clash between good guys and bad guys, right? (laughs) So we have to understand that the Bible is a huge clash between good and evil, between God and good guys and evil rebellious entities, And that that war is still going on to this day. We are not, when we read the Bible, it's not just about something that happened thousands of years ago and is over. Like we're watching the trailer credits like, oh, that was nice. That was great. It's over. It's not. We're in the middle of the movie right now. We are living out biblical history We are in the middle of this cosmic battle. That's why the Bible is so essential for us. We're living this thing out. And if we don't understand that there's a cosmic battle, a cosmic war, then guess what? We'll never understand how to play our part. We're not the main characters in the story, but we're an essential part of the story. And we've been invited to be a part of this battle. That's why when Paul in Ephesians chapter six says what? Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the schemes of the evil one, the devil. That means you and I must suit up and get ready to go fight a cosmic battle. This is not something to sit on the sidelines for. This is what the the narrative of the Bible is, war and an evil rebellion. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to lay out this little narrative, kind of give you a broad picture here, and and I'm just going to put here the story of rebellion and war. What you see in the scripture is basically this. 
I didn't put it up on the slides, but it's in your notes. If you're online, um, hopefully you're able to find the notes. They're, they're available to you. So there's the great king Yahweh, right? Yahweh is, is God, the creator God. This is the name for God that the Hebrews would use. God, Yahweh, creates a realm with a vision of a kingdom and a partnership in ruling that kingdom with his faithful creation. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now, many times we'll read Genesis 1 and 2 and we'll think, oh, this is all about our creation. It's all about us. Actually, it's not about us. We don't even show up in the story until like 26 verses later. So the story is about God creating a realm, and then we're on day six. Like if you think we're the main characters, don't you think we'd show up early on, right? Wouldn't we be the first things made? This, is, this story is about God. He creates a realm. He creates us as an essential part in it. He gives us authority to rule with him. Read Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. He gives us that authority, commissions us to do it, places us in the garden. That's the story of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 is trouble in paradise. It's the opening act of this war. What happens? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Let's just, let's just read it. I've got it right here. It says, now the serpent, right? We'll talk about the serpent today. That'll be our main focus here of understanding this context is who is this guy? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it or you're going to die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like him, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they went and they hid. Okay? We oftentimes will read that, we focus on us, right? It was man's sin. We failed. Eve ate us out of house and home, right? It's, this is how it goes. We, we want to we wanna blame and we put it all on man. We forget that the failure of man was actually stirred by something, by an evil entity that has chosen to be in rebellion to God. What we don't get in the Bible, we, don't, we get kind of clues and hints about it, but we know that all of the entities in the spiritual realm they were all created as well. They were all created entities. The implication here is they were created before all of this other stuff. They witnessed God's creation. They saw it happen. Sometime, at some point, God created them. And one of them decides to be a rebellious entity to try to, and what I put here is just an evil, jealous, power-hungry adversary, secretly lays a trap to overthrow the king and take over the kingdom. 
That's ultimately what Satan is trying to do. And we're going to get to that here in a moment. The plot, how is he going to do this? Number one, he's going to enslave, entrap and enslave humanity. He's going to deceive them into rebellion. He's going to take them captive. He's going to rule over them. Then he's going to go garner other Elohim to join him in rebellion, which we'll talk about next week. Okay, He's going to get them to follow him in rebellion, and they are going to then lead a revolt to overthrow the great king. They want to take over Yahweh's throne. Now, the twist inside of all this, if you read your Bible, is that the great king lays a trap. And we'll talk about this here at the end. But this trap ultimately is the downfall of this divine rebel. Over the course of history, we get a chance to see it uh, unfold. What we see in the Old Testament, though, is it is that Satan knew it was going to unfold. He didn't know how it was going to unfold. He's waiting for it. And then Christ, it all becomes a reality. It becomes the mystery revealed. And this is what Paul refers to in Ephesians, where he talks about that this has been hidden. It's a mystery, but now it's revealed in Christ and we get to proclaim it. This trap God sets in place in Genesis chapter three, and it ultimately leads to the the defeat and the destruction of all of the rebellious entities and then the glorious fulfillment of his divine kingdom vision. All right? That's kind of the the narrative of the Bible. Everything you read fits into there somehow. Okay? So when you are reading the Old Testament... As you're reading the New Testament, as you're reading prophets, as you're reading judgments, as you're you're seeing the different, you know, how it plays out in the physical realm, know that ultimately the narrative is showing up in the physical realm because there's something else happening in the spiritual. The Bible is trying to help you understand that. That's why it gives you all of this context. The rest of today's message now is just just talk about that divine adversary. Let's talk about what we would call Satan, the devil, the evil one, okay? The Bible has some very interesting things to say about him. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the, uh, the devil or Satan, one of which is, is pretty simple in the sense that Satan we use as a, as a name, but Satan actually is a little bit more like a, a role or a, a function. For instance, I am a pastor, right? And some people will even call me. They'll be like, hey, pastor, how are you? Okay, they use that as a title, but that's not my name, right? It's, it's, it's a kind of a title, but it's a title that describes a role or a function. I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Job chapter 1. And we're going to go to verse 6. Remember last week we talked about this divine council, this structure in heaven, that there's a divine council, a group of spiritual beings that God kind of assembles at times, and then he works through them. 
He gets their input, insight. They they wrestle with problems, issues. He, God, Yahweh, works through this divine counsel in different ways. And we, we introduced this last week. If it's kind of a weird concept, uh, please go back and watch that message. In, in uh, Job chapter 1, verse 6, we have a picture of this council kind of gathering together. And I've got a little screenshot from my, my Bible software that I use when I study. And I just want to put it up here, and I want you to see a couple of things. So uh, if we can put it up there. So here we are. We're in, we're in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, I want to help you understand what you're seeing up here. So where it says, Satan allowed to test, test Job. Okay, that's kind of that title of that section. Right under there where it says 6, now you have, that's the English ESV version of the, the Bible. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Okay? So that's, the, that's just straight the ESV. It's like if you were just opening your Bible, that's what you'd see. Okay? Under that is the correlating Hebrew text. Okay? So if you know the Hebrew letters and how they sound and all the little markings, you'd be able to read that and you'd be kind of going a little... It would If it was in text, it would be kind of flipped backwards. But this... All of the words, they're associated with the words that they're translated to, okay? So that's the Hebrew text right under it. Under that is basically how you would say that Hebrew word in English, okay? So let's just take the, now there was a day when the sons of God, okay? So just take that sons of God. Under that, you see the, in the English part, you see the Hebrew, and then under that, the English, how it would sound, B'nei Elohim. Okay, so you've got this, this English description uh, of how you would say the Hebrew up above. Are you following? Does that make sense? Okay, so as you're going, uh, now there was, a, there was a day when the sons of God, and this, th- that, that term, B'nei Elohim, is almost always in the Old Testament used for angelic beings or divine beings, sons of God. Sons of the Most High, we saw that in in Psalm 82, uh, verse 6 last week when we were wrestling with this. You know, when God says, I said to you, you are Elohim, you are uh, sons of the Most High, right? This is referring to these angelic beings, and they are doing what? They're coming to present themselves before the Lord. They're gathering, they're assembling before him. And then it says, second line here, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord's and answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro about the earth and walking upon it, up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Okay. So that's there. I want you to notice, I highlighted all the places where it says Satan. Okay. And when you drop down below, you'll notice it says, ha Satan. That little article, ha, is what we would call like a definite article, like in our word, it would be like the, the Satan. It's there in the text. Now, our English Bibles don't put the Satan because it would seemingly be weird. We think of Satan as a name, 
Hebrew here is not saying this is, this is the, the evil one's name. It's actually describing his role or function. Okay? So uh, let me see if I can explain this. If I'm preaching, you wouldn't say the Corey is preaching. Okay? And neither would Hebrew. Hebrew wouldn't say ha Corey is preaching. It would say the preacher is preaching, right? That makes sense to us. So the word Satan is not a name per se. It is a function. It's a role. It's not necessarily evil or bad in and of itself. For instance, if you were in a trial, like you're going to court, you have a prosecutor and you have a defense attorney. Are they good or bad? Either one. Neither, they're not. They just have roles to play in our court system, right? So the prosecutor or the attorney, they're, they're just, they have roles to play. Hasatan is a description of a role, okay? Now, we, we look at the context of this passage and we go, okay, this guy's in rebellion. He is, he's doing things that are not good. Uh, however, well, let me just flip over to, if you look up the word Satan, this is what it means. If you go to the next screenshot from my, so I just clicked on the little Strong's number there. This is what Satan means. An adversary or one who withstands or opposes an adversary in general, personal or national, superhuman adversary. The Satan Someone who opposes. When we use the word Satan, what we're really describing is the one who is rebelling or opposing God. They have become an opposer to God's will, his purposes, his plans on the earth. So this divine rebel is a Satan, (laughs) is an opposer. They're an adversary. Okay, does that make sense? Are you following here? So it doesn't necessarily mean that's his name. Even though we can refer to him as Satan, we know who we're talking about, right? He is the divine rebel. He is uh, an opposer. Now, if you flip to the back page of your notes, we'll, we'll go on here to take a look at a little deeper level of who this opposer actually is. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. What we look at in Job, what we say is Satan, we don't know if that entity is the same one as the one in the garden. We don't. What we do know is that in the scripture, there are lots of people in the, or lots of entities in the spiritual realm that have ultimately chosen to rebel. They have turned their back against Yahweh. They have become Satan's. Uh, adversaries of God. They're not, they're not loyal or faithful or working with God. They are now opposing God's work. It's not just one character. However, in Genesis chapter three, we have a very specific character, which we know as the serpent. So back to Genesis chapter three, verse one, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The divine rebel here is described as a serpent. 
This also ties us together with Revelation chapter 9, or uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where we see that the, if you could just flip open to that, I have a, a Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, right? This is now at this end of the Bible, who is called the devil and Satan, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down earth, right? Okay, so are you seeing what ultimately is battled at the end is the same entity as was battled at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. This is not just a regular snake. This is a divine being. We did talk about how could it be a seraphim as described in Isaiah chapter 6. We talked about that in the previous two messages. It's, it's one of those things to just wrestle with. Not saying it is, but it could be. Now, what do we also know from Genesis chapter 3? We know that the divine rebel is described as being crafty. The Hebrew word arum. Okay, it's crafty. Now, if you look up this Hebrew word, you'll see that there are kind of three words that are also uh, used to kind of uh, define this word in the English. One is cunning, one is clever, and one is crafty. And when I say crafty, that doesn't mean he's knitting Afghans and making things out of pipe cleaners. Uh, it, 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 the, the meaning is up on the screen. Let's go through them just one by one. To be cunning, it means to have or show skill in achieving one's end by deceit or evasion or manipulation. It's getting your way, achieving your personal desires through deception, devious efforts, evasion, manipulation. Some of you guys are thinking, my kids are Satan. <laughs> this is what my kids do. They excel at this. If they don't get their way, I'm telling you, there is a wave of accusations or efforts to try to deceive me or accuse me of being a horrible dad. Or, you hate me. You don't love me. You know, <laughs> you know it's just this... This, I'm going to try to manipulate you, deceive you, get you to cert think certain things that are, are not connected to reality. They're not truth, but I'm going to try to get you to do what I want you to do through any of these means. That's cunning. That's what it means. What does the Bible say about the serpent? He was more cunning than anything else in the creation. More cunning. He's a master at this skill. The serpent knows how to get what he wants. And he does so through deceit, evasion, and manipulation. The second word here is he's clever. He's clever. Clever just simply means quick to learn, quick to understand, to devise and apply schemes. This is connected to this idea, right, in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul says 
uh, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's what? Schemes, his plans, his little, I, you know, his little uh, crafty, you know, clever little deceptive efforts to try to derail you or to entrap you or to enslave you or to make you not as effective in the battle. He's clever. He's intelligent. This is not, you know, your kids are good at this. They, they, do, not, they do not measure up at all to the serpent in the garden. The third word here is crafty. means to be clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. All of this to say that this divine rebel is not to be taken lightly. I think one of his schemes is to get us to think that he doesn't really have, he doesn't really exist. I, I, there was a pastor in our community, who, a gal uh, that I know, she was in a Bible study, and this pastor basically in his Bible study said, there is no such thing as Satan. There is no such thing as Satan. He just is, you know, kind of a, you know, a kind of in, uh, an allusion to the bad in the world. And it's, but he's not really uh, an entity. And here's what he says. He said, if you want to think that, you know, Satan's a little guy in a red suit and little tail and horns and a pitchfork, and you go right ahead, but nobody in their right mind thinks that. Well, I don't think Satan's like that either. But the Bible is very clear that Satan is unbelievably skilled at deceiving. So much so that the one interaction we see with mankind and the serpent within just a few words, Eve has decided to rebel against Yahweh. It's just like six verses long. It's just a couple questions, boom, I've got her, she eats, and now they're trapped. It goes that fast. He is a master at this. We will, we will not engage the battle with any kind of wisdom if we think that Satan is just a guy with red tights and little horns and a pitchfork and sits around controlling the temperature in hell. Right? That's not who we're dealing with here. Now, I'm not giving him more credit than he's due. He is a defeated, defeated foe. We know that, right? All we have to do is go to Revelation. We see the end of it all. We know how it ends. But he is, he is no slouch, no pushover. In fact, in that same passage of Revelation 12, verse 9, it describes him as one who has deceived the whole world. The entire thing. It's the primary reason why then Jesus comes and over and over and over says, I've come to tell you the truth because the enemy has got you trapped with a lie. And that leads us to the next thing we know about the divine rebel is that he uses deception as his primary method of keeping people in bondage. His primary uh, method or his MO his modus operandi, 
You think about this, it just simply means a distinct pattern or method of operation, and it suggests the work of a single criminal in multitudes of crimes. If you take a look at all of the the various rebellions and acts of rebellion and acts of evil and wickedness in the Bible, do you know what it's all triggered by? Deception, a lie. So really the only power this guy has is to keep you in the dark. So when Jesus came and says, I'm here to tell you the truth, you're not going to be lied to anymore. I'm going to tell you what's really going on. Right? This was a direct confrontation to the war of the evil one that started right back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we see his deception with Eve. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Eve was deceived. It means that she, was, she thought what she was doing was going to be a good thing, a beneficial thing, but it actually was not. It was an enslavement. In Revelation 12, verse 9, let's read that one more time, if we can. We throw that up there. It says, now the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. His primary method is to deceive. John 8, verses 43 through 45, Jesus confronting the Pharisees and basically says, you don't want to listen to me because I'm telling you the truth and you can't handle the truth, right? A little, you know, a few good men clips. You can't handle the truth. Jesus probably would say that. And he says, the reason you can't handle the truth is, in verse 44, because you are of your father, the devil. Verse 44, and you will do your father's desires. Now, Jesus then describes the evil one. He was a murderer from the beginning. This is a direct uh, connection to the garden. Because of his deception, what did mankind ultimately have to endure? Death, right? Satan, the divine rebel, the serpent, was the cause of mankind's death. He murdered us in a lot of ways, right? So he was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies, The divine rebel is a liar, and he is tremendously good at it. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is that if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that there is a battle to control you, to keep you under his thumb, and the way he does that is to keep you from knowing what actually is truth, then you won't understand the nature of the battle that's raging. How is the enemy, how is the evil one trying to overthrow God? By deceiving the whole world. Getting us to believe that God isn't worth following. Getting us to step away from who we really are in Christ. Getting you to believe that you're the main person in the story. Right? It's all A lie. Why does the divine rebel do it? Well, he does it because he ultimately wants to take the throne of Yahweh. He wants to take the throne of God. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Notice what it says here. 
It says, how you have fallen, O day star, O son of the dawn. Some of your translations will actually use the word Lucifer here. Not necessarily a, a great translation, but it, it kind of gives you a sense like this is connecting it to the evil one. How have you fallen from heaven? The idea here is you are not just fallen, you are ki kicked out. You are cast out. The word there, fallen, can actually mean to be cast out of heaven. And then it goes on in verse 13. It said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will ascend to heaven. The idea, this is where God is. Heaven's God's arena. This is where God rules and reigns. I'm going to rise up to God's level. And what am I going to do? I'm going to put myself above the stars of God. This is a reference to angelic created uh, spiritual entities. Above the stars of God. Right above the divine council. I'm going to rule where he rules. I will set my throne on high. This idea that God's throne is on a mountain is, you know, we, we talked about this several months ago. Uh, you know, God's throne, mountain of God, all that stuff is kind of tied together with this idea of Eden. Satan here is going, I'm going to rise up. I'm going to rise above even the stars of God. I'm going to take God's place. I'm going to set my throne on high, and I will sit on the Mount of Assembly. The Mount of Assembly is this idea throughout Scripture that God has a mount which he rules from, and his assembly or his divine council gathers together. What we're seeing in Job chapter 1, verse 6, is a gathering of God and his, his divine council on the Mount of Assembly, right? This is, this is God's arena. What Satan is saying is, what do I want to do? I want to overthrow Yahweh. I want to get him out of there, and I'm going to take his spot. I've got some other things there in terms of the Mount of Assembly and in the far reaches of the north that connects uh, that language connects to Psalm 48 verses one and two. And there's some other things there. Maybe we'll get to that in the podcast. It'd be a fun thing to kind of navigate just a bit. But ultimately in verse 14, here's what he says. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What does the evil one want? What does the Satan want? He wants to be God. He wants Yahweh's position. And he is working and seeking to lead a rebellion to overthrow Yahweh. The first act in this war was in Genesis chapter 3. Now trust me, this is how it, it shaped up in the physical dimensions of our world. But trust me, this was going on in other arenas. When Jesus is talking about it, right? When God reveals this in the prophet, basically God here in, in chapters, uh, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, basically God's saying, I know exactly what was going on in your mind when you set out to destroy humanity. This is, I know, I know everything. You can't escape. It's not like hidden from me. 
Your idea is that you're going to rise above me. You're going to sit yourself over me. You're going to throw me off the throne. You're going to take over the council. You know, you want to be like the most high. This is your effort. I'm just going to read your mail to you. Right? This is God telling Satan, I know exactly what's behind all of this. The battle that rages is all for God's throne. Now I'm going to end with this. I'm going to have the band come out and we're going to do this final uh, song. But I'm going, to, I'm going to leave this here with you. God ultimately leaves a trap for Satan in Genesis chapter 3. So right after the fall, right after the serpent has deceived mankind, he's kind of enslaved them. And then God comes looking for them. They're, they're, they're hiding from him. God says, what happened? Well, the, the serpent deceived us. The very first judgment of God goes directly to the serpent. It does not go to man and, and the woman. It goes directly to the serpent. And one of the judgments that God proclaims upon the serpent is this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. This is the NIV. And it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, you may not think much about this, but Satan knows that God doesn't say things he doesn't mean, right? Satan knows that God doesn't say things he doesn't mean. And from this moment on, you know, the serpent is not all-knowing. He doesn't know the beginning from the end. He's not all-powerful. Now, all of a sudden, Satan is desperately aware. He knows that God is going to do something. God is going to fight back. And Satan now is on the defensive because what God has said. What does God say? He says, you know what? There's going to be a battle, a tension between you and the, the offspring of the woman. And from the offspring of a woman is going to rise up someone who's going to crush your head. You know what that means? He's going to destroy you. You crush a snake's head, you destroy them. They might bite your heel, but ultimately what God says is you're going to get a shot in, but this offspring is going to destroy you. It's going to be your destruction. Now you might understand why in Egypt, why the Pharaoh wanted to kill all of the boys and throw them in the Nile. Because why? Because Satan ultimately is like, man, is this, is this part of it? Is this something? Is there an upright? I got to destroy the seed of the woman. Now, this might help you make sense then that when Jesus was being born, right? That there was all of those children that were put to death what is Satan doing? He's grasping at straws, desperately trying to make sure that the seed of the woman does not come and get him. What ultimately then becomes the reality is that the seed of woman does come. Jesus is born. And we see then the revelation of this in Revelation 12, verse 1. It says, There was a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, 
with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. This is the nation of Israel. It's kind of a, a, a you know, the 12 stars is the, this is the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's kind of imagery here. And she was pregnant. She was crying out, giving birth, pains, agony of giving birth. Pregnant with what? God's plan, what he was going to do. And another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head with seven diadems. It rules over the, the nations. A diadem is, a diadem is that, that symbol of a, a ruling over a nation. So this, this beast, the serpent, the ruler of this world, and his tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He sought to destroy the seed of the woman. But what happens? The woman fled into the wilderness. Or it says, verse five, she gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. That's Jesus and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. It says, now war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I want you to listen to this as we close this service. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and seas, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? because suddenly now he knows his time is short. We're living in that realm right now. The devil knows his time is short. He is defeated. The son is sitting at the right hand of the father. How do we overcome the serpent? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and being faithful to the end. Father, we just come before you and we pray, God, that we as your people would rely and lean on the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, and that we would also be people of, of the truth, that we proclaim your word, the word of our testimony, the truth of what you've done in us, we will proclaim that gospel and live that out each and every day and that we will be faithful even unto death. God, may we overcome because we stand in the strength and the power of the one who did. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. 
If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.